Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. We cannot deny that prophecy is being fulfilled before our eyes in the nation of Israel. While some would say that Israel got lucky or that the land was given to the Jewish people as a consolation after the Holocaust, we believe that Israel's rebirth was not man-ordained but God-ordained. It was not a coincidence but divinely deliberate. This has always been God's plan for Israel, that though they were scattered, he would gather them back again to the land he promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Unfortunately, Israel has been forced to fight to keep her land, and many have died defending this nation over the years. We remember these brave men and women during Yom Hazikaron, Israel's Memorial Day. The day after is Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel's Independence Day, and this year, Israel will celebrate its 73rd birthday as a reborn nation. While Israel is an independent nation state, she still faces challenges to being in the land. Many do not recognize Israel's right to exist, and there is still ongoing unrest and conflict in the Middle East. As believers, we want to know what God's perfect plan is. At our Pray for the Peace of Jerusalem conference in 2014, well-known apologist Dr. Michael Brown spoke about God's plan for Israel. We hope it will help answer some difficult questions and that you will be encouraged by God's sovereignty and faithfulness. Take a listen. Let's start in Jeremiah chapter 30. And what we want to focus on today is Israel's relationship to the land. Notice that when Jewish people are scattered around the world, you still have anti-Semitism. Jews still get blamed for all kinds of things. When the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was released over 100 years ago, basically a, a forgery, a, a document put on the, the lips of Jewish leaders as if there's this Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, apparently distributed by Russian secret police originally. But bottom line is, 
a, a document making the Jews responsible for problems worldwide or claiming they're trying to take over the entire world. That comes out at a time when the Jewish people are not living in large numbers in the land, and Palestine is, is mainly Arab. In, in other words, Jews have been blamed for things through the centuries, wherever we've been. During the, the Middle Ages, when the Black Plague wiped out as much as a, a third of the European population, uh, who got blamed for the Black Plague? Jews. Now, Jews died also, but in some cases, not in, in numbers as high, and that would have just been because of, of sanitary principles that Jews lived by or dietary principles because of the law, but they still died. Nonetheless, they got blamed for it, and they were accused of poisoning the wells and taking animal hearts and, and, and other parts of you know, living creatures and, and the communion elements and mixing them together to concoct a poison, to poison the wells of Europe. I mean, crazy stuff like that. So through the centuries, Jews still get blamed. There's still that spirit of anti-Semitism in the world, that irrational spirit that blames Jews for everything. But the real controversy erupts when the Jewish people are back in the land. That's when it seems everything goes crazy. Do you ever play that game when, when you're a kid, you're trying to figure out where something is, you're getting hot, you're hotter, you're red hot, cold, so you're getting closer, closer you're, you're hot. You're, well, it's, it's the same thing when, when the Jewish people are back in the land. Now it's when things are getting hot. And now, now when Jerusalem is back in Jewish hands, now, now red hot. In other words, there are prophecies that cannot be fulfilled without a Jewish-controlled Jerusalem. There are prophecies that cannot be fulfilled without the Jewish people being back in the land. And, and it seems that this is the place for all-out battle. And you have to ask yourself, why is it around the world that with all the disputes about borders and all the disputes about sovereignty of this country or that country or this group wanting to rebel, why is it that the only place that the whole world cares about is the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem? And why is it that it's the only capital city of a nation anywhere in the world that is not universally recognized by other nations? You know, if America said our new capital is going to be Hoboken, New Jersey, and we're moving the, the White House there and everything, well, then all the embassies would move to Hoboken. But when Israel said, we're changing our capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, with the rarest of exception, all the embassies of those that recognize Israel are still in Tel Aviv. Why is this? It's clear there's something spiritual going on. So my big question is a simple one. Do the prophetic scriptures speak of the Jewish people coming back to the physical land of Israel at the end of the age? Or is that something that was only for the past? So let's start in Jeremiah chapter 30. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. 
Now, indisputably, this was speaking first about the return from Babylonian exile. Why do we say that? Well, because that's what Jeremiah is prophesying through the book. That's what happens in his lifetime, that his people are taken captive to Babylon. And, and roughly 150 years earlier than that, the northern kingdom of Israel was smashed by the Assyrians, and around 721, the, the northern tribes were exiled into Assyria and even scattered from there. There's still some remnant that remained in northern Israel. So the, the people of Israel and the people of Judah are in captivity, and more are going to be taken into captivity. And Jeremiah prophesying from the Lord says they will come back to the land. Obviously, first and foremost, it applied to what happened in Jeremiah's day and the subsequent generations. That's self-evident. That has to be. The question is, does it also apply to the end of the age? Does it also apply to our day? The text continues, these are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. And that day declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I'll raise up for them. We looked at this passage briefly last night. So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord, though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you. I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. And flip over to chapter 31 and skip down to verse 10. Jeremiah 31, 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty. And there are many other related verses. So here's the question. Was that only for ancient Israel and Judah, or does it apply to today? The regathering of the Jewish people that's happened over the last century, the Jewish population of Israel today being more than 6 million people, is that the hand of God, or is that just something that happened? Or is, was that the, the, the outgrowth of, of European colonization of the Middle East and dividing these different places into nations? Like Places like Saudi Arabia did not exist as a nation before. Some of the other nations in the Middle East did not exist as distinct nations. Is it just you know, European and American governments just kind of chopping things up, and that's how we got Israel? Did people just do this? 
first, let me give you a really simple spiritual answer that that is impossible according to the Bible. And then I want to give you more scripture to support this. And then I want to explain why this is such a big issue today, Israel in the land. But first, let me give you a very simple scriptural principle. And we see throughout the Bible that when God promises to do something, if he determines to do it, no one can stop him from doing it. Now, he might say, I will do this if you repent. I'll bless you if you repent. If people don't repent, then he won't do it. Or I'm going to judge you, uh, and, and if they turn away from that, he won't judge. If I, He said, I'm going to bless you, and they turn away from doing what's right, he won't bless. We understand things are conditional. But if God says, I'm going to do this, it can't be stopped. So, for example, if God curses, no one can bless. You remember what happens with Balaam. Balaam asks if he should go and, and curse Israel when, when Balak, the king of Moab, invites him. And, and he asks the Lord, and what does the Lord say to him? It's basically a threefold answer. Don't go, don't curse them because they're blessed. It's, it's one sentence, but it's basically a threefold answer. Don't go, don't curse them because they're blessed. And when he does go and try to curse them later on, he can't. He, here he is, he's a, he's a pagan soothsayer and, you know, hears from different gods and beings, whatever, and, and he's trying to curse, but God won't let him. So if God's determined to bless, you can't curse. And if God's determined to curse, you can't bless. In the same way, when God smites, for example, some of the, the diseases and the curses in Deuteronomy 28, they're incurable. Why? Because if God smites, nobody could heal. And if God heals, no one could smite. These are just basic biblical principles. When, when, when the Lord says in, in Revelation, the third chapter, to the believers in Philadelphia, I've set before you an open door that no one can shut, no one can shut it. If God opens a door, no one can shut it. If he shuts a door, no one can open it. I mean, this is pretty basic. I don't know that anyone that believes in the Scripture would differ with anything I'm saying here. So here's the question. If God scattered Israel in his anger, if God scattered the Jewish people in his anger, in judgment over our sin, then we cannot regather ourselves. All right? Otherwise, he scatters and we go, oh, yeah, and we just walk back. He puts us in exile, and we think, oh, yeah, and we just regather ourselves. No, if we had the power to do that, then it wouldn't be divine judgment. So, very simply, if he scatters, and now we have more than 6 million Jews living in a land surrounded by hostile enemies, the only way that happened is God did it. Now, you might say that's so simple. It is so simple. But it's so simple because it's so basic and it's so true. Well, I've, I've put this question out in public debates with scholars. I've put this question out with folks I've dialogued with, you know, Palestinian Christian on my radio show. I've put it out on social media to the, to the millions of people we reach on social media. And not a single person has been able to give me a legitimate answer to this. 
If God scattered the Jewish people in his anger, then who regathered them? Satan doesn't have the power to. Human beings don't have the power to. It must be God who has done it. Now, let me give you a good principle of interpretation. That if God brings curses, that the literality of the curses must be just as real as the literality of the blessings. And if God smites, that the literality of the smiting must equal the literality of the healing. My doctoral dissertation was on the Hebrew word for healing and the larger concepts related to that, and then other Semitic languages that use similar terminology. And so I, I looked at this very intensely for a couple of years, and then wrote a book some years later called Israel's Divine Healer and studied all the relevant scriptures on this. So it's something I really gave attention to. So, so what would it mean? If, if, if God says, I, I will smite you with boils from head to toe because of your sin, but if you repent, I will totally heal you, then that must mean if he literally smote that person with boils from head to toe because of their sin, when that person cried out for mercy and turned in repentance, that he would literally heal them of the boils, correct? It would not be a literal smiting, but a spiritual healing. You know, God smites that person with boils. Lord, I've sinned. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. Yes, I will heal you. Spiritually. No, no, he, he did not just heal that person spiritually and leave them with boils from head to toe. And again, this is just a theoretical uh, uh, illustration I'm giving you. So the literality of the healing would have to be as real and, and as literal as the smiting. Otherwise, the words have no meaning and, and the promises are of no value. You know, God destroys Jerusalem and scatters the people because of sin. And then he says, and I will rebuild Jerusalem and regather the people. But I only mean it spiritually. The city's going to still be in ruins. The temple's going to still be burned down. You're still going to be rotting in exile. But I will spiritually rebuild the city and spiritually regather you. No, that's not what he said. I'll smite you. I'll heal you. I'll scatter you. I'll regather you. What the church has often done with these passages is said, yes, the smiting was real, but the healing is spiritual. The scattering was real, but the regathering is spiritual. And the general principle is, when God says, I will scatter you in my wrath, that's Israel. And I will regather you in my love. That's the church. I mean, that's, that's how, that's how the, the Bible's read, that the curses are for the Jews and the promises are for the Christians. We'll be right back. Shalom. My name is Nicole Vaca, and I'm one of the co-producers of Our Hope podcast. We created Our Hope to be a window into the Messianic community, a place where we can discuss Israel and the Bible, and a resource for people who want to share their faith more effectively and compassionately with the Jewish community. 
If you are interested in supporting what we do, you can donate to Chosen People Ministries at chosenpeople.com donate. You can also support us by sharing this podcast on social media with your friends and family or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for your support and we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Right, let's let's go a little deeper into this. Jeremiah 30, this passage that we've looked at, beginning in verse 5, this is what the Lord says, cries of fear are heard, terror not peace. And it goes on with this time of horrific judgment that's coming, and yet God will deliver Jacob out of it. Some say this just refers to end time, final tribulation, and calamity. I don't believe it can just refer to that, the time of Jacob's trouble. I'll explain why in a minute. Some say, well, it's a pattern for Jewish suffering through the centuries. There have been many times of Jacob's trouble, including the Holocaust. Okay, that has some validity to it. And some say, no, no, it was just referring to, to what happened in Jeremiah's day, and nothing like that will ever happen again. Time of trouble for Jacob, but he'll be saved out of it. But there's a problem with that as well. I get into it in some depth in my Jeremiah commentary, and really looked at the text as carefully as I could in the Hebrew to understand what was going on. And, and from what I can tell, the first application, again, has to be to Jeremiah's day. He's prophesying the destruction of the temple. He's prophesying what the Babylonians are going to do. He's prophesying these horrible things that are going to happen, and they happen. To say that he wasn't referring to that, but he was referring to something 2,500 years later makes no sense whatsoever. But you better believe what the prophet was saying happened. So first and foremost, this is speaking of, of the terrible suffering that was going to come to the people. And this is in Jeremiah's day. But for me, as I studied it carefully, it doesn't end there. It's also speaking of other calamitous times, perhaps right up to the end, the final calamity, the final attack, and God's final deliverance. My point is that Jewish suffering has not stopped, that the scattering of the Jewish people has not stopped, and therefore the promises of restoration have not stopped. As long as we are here, preserved by God as a distinct people, as long as the world is out to destroy us, as long as we have been scattered, then the promises of restoration still remain. Remember, fulfillment means to fill to the full. So, so you may have a glass that literally is half full, and, and maybe that's the first pouring. Okay, let me get some more of that drink. Well, now you pour in the rest and fill it the rest of the way. So as we saw last night, the prophecies of the return from exile were partially fulfilled, but not completely fulfilled. And we are now gradually moving towards the complete and final fulfillment of those scriptures. And how can we also see that? Well, let's, let's turn to a, a passage like Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. And you have to ask the question, has this come to pass yet? Remember, Zechariah is prophesying after the return from exile. All right, so the Jewish people have returned from exile. Jerusalem 
is being rebuilt or has been rebuilt, and Zechariah gives this prophecy. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Okay, so hang on. This has not happened yet. What's prophesied here has not happened yet. I've read interpreters to try to, who try to put some spiritual interpretation on it or try to apply it to, to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It, it, it doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. So it is speaking of a time still to come where there will be a Judah and a Jerusalem, and there will be Jewish inhabitants in a Jewish-controlled Judah and Jerusalem. This still has to happen. In other words, for the prophetic scriptures to be fulfilled, there have to be Jewish people living in the land. There has to be a Jewish-controlled Jerusalem. This, ha this has to be a, a, an Israelite country, otherwise these passages can't be fulfilled. I'm going, to make it, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth have gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Notice that imagery of trying to move it. So notice again plainly that this has not yet come to pass. All nations have not come against Jerusalem in this way. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile. Like a flaming torch among sheaves, they will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. And it goes on from there, leading into 13.1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And the same with chapter 14. There must be a Jewish-controlled Jerusalem. There must be a Jewish land of Judah for these prophecies to come to pass. And ultimately, this is the climax of the ages. This is the final battleground. And, and certainly Satan understands that it is a Jewish Jerusalem that welcomes the Messiah back. So, so we know in the judgment passage in Matthew 23, where Yeshua pronounces seven woes against hypocritical religious leaders, that he ends by saying in beginning verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, verse 39, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch HaBab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And we understand that those were the same words that were used with his triumphal entry as he was coming into Jerusalem just a couple weeks earlier. And, 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 and the crowds hailing him as the Messianic king. What was, what was going on then? What were they saying? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We welcome you, King Messiah. He said, you won't see me again. It's a judgment passage, yes, but what's the word? You won't see me again until you welcome me back as the Messiah. And what does Peter preach in Acts 3? I referred to it last night. Repent then and turn to God that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, that he may send the Messiah. And, and this is a concept that was found in traditional Judaism as well, that Jewish repentance will bring back the Messiah. And here we see it in Zechariah, the 12th chapter. This is the final battleground, and Satan knows that it is a Jewish Jerusalem that will welcome back the Messiah. And when he returns, that's the end for Satan. So if you were the devil, what would you try to do? Well, wipe out the Jewish people. That's a good place to start. That failing, keep them out of the land. And, and there's one other thing to, to think about. We are here to see literal promises fulfilled of the Jewish people literally restored back to the land. And when God acts in history, when, when the Son of God comes into the world, what do people do? They kill him. It, it's almost as if you can get close enough to God the human beings, the human race with our rebellion, with our hatred of God, what do we want to do? We want, we want to attack. You know, there's the, the joke that some atheists who've written books that are tremendously hostile to God and religion, you could sum them up with saying, there is no God and I hate him. I mean, you, you understand that sentiment. It's, it's, it's certainly there. So the, the point is this. There is a hatred for the things of God, the purposes of God. So when God acts in history in a tangible way, an undeniable way, there is a fierce resistance to it. And hence this fierce resistance to the Jewish people restored back to the land. Because it is God acting clearly in history and demonstrating his will and demonstrating his power. Now, let me say one last thing. The theological ramifications of the return of the Jewish people to the land, the theological ramifications are massive. Why do I say that? Well, replacement theology, or as you understand, supersessionism, the idea that the church superseded Israel and God's promises, that was prevalent through much of church history. And although there are people who hold to different forms of it today who are in no way anti-Semites, who love the Jewish people, the fact is, historically, this opened the floodgates of anti-Semitism. Without this theology, we would not have had the anti-Semitism in the church that we've had through history. So again, 
There are people who hold to various forms of replacement theology today, and most of them don't like to use that term. They use other terms. And they are not anti-Semites, but it is replacement theology that opened the doors to anti-Semitism through church history. And, and many will say, look, look, I don't hold to replacement theology. I hold to fulfillment theology. I hold to this. I hold to that. I just ask a simple question. Are there literal promises that remain for the physical nation of Israel today? If they say no, they hold to replacement theology. Somebody else got those promises, okay? Those promises were given to physical national Israel, and now we're told they no longer apply to them. Then they've been replaced. It's, it's really simple. No matter how you slice the cake, or, excuse me, no matter how you slice the bagel. Last point. It was easy to have a theology that said God's finished with the Jewish people as a nation. Individual Jews can be saved, but God's finished with the Jewish people as a nation. Why? Well, they're scattered, obviously. The temple's been destroyed. It's over. God, God made his statement. He gave his final statement. It's done with. It's over. With the destruction of the temple, it was like three strikes, you're out. You rejected Moses, you rejected the prophets, now you rejected the Messiah. It's over. This fig tree will never bear fruit again. It's been cursed. Jewish people scattered. The wrath of God's come on them for good. Individual Jews can be saved, but no promises remain for national Israel. With the horrors of the Holocaust and the shame of so many church leaders recognizing that it was anti-Semitism that paved the way, prepared the way in Europe, for the horrors of the Holocaust. And now, with the restoration of the Jewish people back to the land, it became very difficult to say that God's through with Israel. Surviving the Holocaust, the shame of the fruit of replacement theology in the church, and now the physical restoration, how can you possibly say that God's finished with them? And so, that teaching really took a blow. However, given time, Many Christians revert back to it. Why? Because Israel's been around so long now, it doesn't even seem like a miracle. I mean, this is the way it's being pictured now. And, and, and Israel's faults and blemishes are obvious, so you can't just have this sentimentalized view of, oh, Israel. And, and so little by little, this wrong, false teaching is, is raising its head again. And yet every day, Israel existing as a nation stands as a witness against this. And of course, at the end of the age, this is one of the false teachings that will be completely demolished. And on a broader scale, as I often say, it will be a bad day for anti-Semites when the one coming in the clouds of heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, that that one will be a glorified Jew. That'll be a bad day for anti-Semites. So hopefully you see the spiritual significance and importance of these things and the ongoing relevance of the words of the prophets. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Jeremiah 31, verse 10. Throughout the Bible and in present time, we've seen how the Jewish people have faced challenges to their survival. And since 1948, they have had to fight to stay in the land God gave to them. In the Old Testament, Israel fought giants and larger armies. And today, 
this nation is now surrounded by neighbors who oppose her. Yet in all of this, we see that God has been faithful to preserve his people. The state of Israel is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Only he can regather the children of Israel back to the land he promised to give to them. As we reflect on God's faithfulness to Israel, we can be sure that he will also be faithful to all who believe in him. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Our Hope. This episode was brought to you by Dr. Mitch Glazer, Dr. Michael Brown, Grace Swee, Abe Vasquez, and Kyron Bautista. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out ourhopepodcast.com or chosenpeople.com. See you next time.